our New Testament reading comes again from Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 16. Hear ye the word of the Lord. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Mm -hmm. Jesus, the Son of God, who let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God's word for God's people and God's people said amen. Amen. Going to spend a little time talking about Jesus the high priest or the word and the word. Let us pray. Father God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Guide my thoughts, guide my heart, guide my mouth so that I can preach your gospel, Lord God. Hide me behind your cross so that no one sees me but sees you and wants to come to you to know you in the pardoning of their sins. In the name of Jesus, the great I am, we pray. Amen. So we have Jesus, the high priest, uh, also known as the word of God from John 14 and what the gospel according to John in general. John 1 and 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And Revelation goes on to tell us about this Jesus coming down and having his name be the word of God. And so I found it kind of interesting when this passage of scripture came up in the lectionary because it's about the word and I'm a little partial to the word. The word corrects, the word rebukes, the word reproves, the word guides us, the word leads us. The word is what we are based on so much to the point that other religions call us the people of the book. Now, in my travels, I still like to call it the book from time to time, but I've learned to understand that this is more than just a book. It's more of a library, if we want to call it that. But not only that, it is the spoken and written word of God. Scripture is how we communicate with mankind. If you want to know what God feels about a particular subject, you can find it in the word. If you want to know what God thinks about anything that's going on right now, You can find it in the word. Why? Because the word says that there is nothing new under the sun. 
they may not have had the kind of technology that we had, but the people are still the same. Psychology has not really changed. People still think pretty much the same. We may be from a certain, a different area of town, or we may have grown up in a different part of the country, but people are still the same. We all are going for the same things. So this word of God is living. It's not written by dead people in a dead language that we no longer have connection to. It is just as relevant as it was back then as it is today. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Again, not dead speech by dead people. The word of God is still being carried out today. That's why you have people specialize in looking at the prophecies of the Bible and pointing out how those different things happen again. They said you would know it was about time for Jesus to come back when somebody could die and the entire world could hear about it in an hour. You can do that right now. Word travels fast. There are different things that happen. It's living and it's active. It keeps us from day to day. It guides us. It molds us. It corrects us. We all have our favorite scriptures. We all have that part of the Bible that has probably been highlighted one too many times. If you turn to it, it's almost ready to fall out because it gives us comfort. It holds us when no one else can. It keeps us when no one else can. And then it is sharper than a two-edged sword. I used to own swords when I was younger. I had all kinds of swords. I had machetes when I was in the martial arts. I had katana blades. I had samurai swords. I had swords that you could hide in a cane and pull it out. And something that I knew, I learned in studying swords and how they were made and how they were used is that only one side of the blade actually was used for cutting for most swords. As a matter of fact, if you didn't hold the sword correctly, it wouldn't be as effective. There was a, a, a character I used to watch on TV, and he was a samurai that had decided he didn't want to uh, kill anymore, so he would battle with his sword flipped over. So he could still battle with the sword, but it wouldn't make any deadly cuts because actually only one end of the sword did the cutting. The other end was to protect you from hurting yourself when you swung the sword. But later on, someone thought that it would be better to start making swords with both sides as sharp. That would make the sword more useful. So even the parts that you didn't think were going on would be effective. And so the word is like a two-edged sword because the parts that you don't think are effective can still be as effective. I, I, I often tell people that it's not uh, the parts of the Bible that you don't like bolster the parts of the Bible that you like. You can't really take one without the other. It's not like going to Ryan's where you'll say, I have some of this and none of that, and I'm going to pass up on this and give me a double portion of that. you got to take it in its entirety, just like medicine. You have to take all of your antibiotics. I know I just got over a, a battle with strep throat and the, and the flu. They gave me medicine and they said take all of it. For if I did not take all of it, I would not have gotten healed as quickly. The, the medicine would not have been effective. So that's what we have to do with the word. We have to take both sides. Even the part that we thought we was going to use on somebody else, we have to take and use on ourselves as well. It's like they say that the word 
You don't read the word all the time. Sometimes the word reads you. I, I, I have a problem. And I guess it's a good problem when I'm in seminary and we have these opportunities to practice preaching in front of each other or practice an opportunity to lead the service. Uh, whenever I read the scripture, no matter what professor it is, he says you read the scripture like the scripture is the sermon itself. We don't need to go into the way because of the way that you read the scripture. That was all in and of that we needed. I'm reminded when I was younger at Light of the World Christian Church of Indianapolis, Indiana, we once had a guest preacher and he was in his 80s. And you can get away with these kind of things when you are as experienced and seasoned as he was. He did not preach a sermon. He read the entire gospel according to Matthew. First chapter to last chapter. And the reason why he did that is because he said a lot of us don't know the gospel. So we ought to be able to preach the gospel and read the gospel. So we ought to be able to get into the word. I am often saying, and I will probably say this until Jesus comes or I am called home. I have a problem with people from other religions knowing the Bible more than we do. We have to know the word. How can we be called a people of the book? How can we be based upon a book if we don't read said book? It goes into our deepest parts, the deepest parts of us. And I like the grammar here, and sometimes it's overlooked. The grammar here says, when, the, when it says, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow. A lot of times people think that that is cutting the soul from the spirit. And it is cutting the soul of the, the joints from the marrow. The division is not the soul from the spirit. The division is not in this grammar, the joints from the marrow. No, 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 no. It is saying that the word divides the soul and divides the marrow. It divides the joints and divides the spirit. It is saying that it is getting inside of us to the deepest part. It's not separating this from that. It's getting all the way inside of us. Reminds me of the phrase that they say about when somebody begins to quote the Bible. Oh, they have a little word in them. You let the word in you. God spoke and God still speaks if you know what to listen for. The word corrects. The word reproves. The word rebukes. The word encourages. Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, 3 through uh, 12 through 3, 12 through 17, yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things of which you know and have learned and have been assured of, knowing that from who you learned in them and that from childhood you were given the Holy Scriptures. From childhood, given the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say that all scripture, all, not some, not part, not this part of this, that part, not the ones we like, but not the parts we don't like. It says all 
all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture. We can't just take out the parts that we don't like because we want to be accepted by a particular popular crowd. We can't just take out the parts that we don't like because we want the right type of person to come to our church. We can't just take out the parts that we don't like because we want to be popular at work. All scripture. All scripture. All scripture. We have to know the word. When we know the word, we'll know that we'll go through times of trouble. But the word will tell us that weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. We'll know that God will never leave us or forsake us. We'll know that we can call on the name of Jesus and be saved. We know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We'll know the word. If we know the word, we'll know that we are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But it is not I who lives, but the Christ who lives in me. And when somebody tries to remind me of my past, because I'm in the word, I know. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. And behold, all things have come new. Again, I say it is not some dead letters left by people in the past. It is living and still applicable today. It exposes our thoughts and desires. It exposes humankind. You, that you, read, you don't read the text. The text reads you. Oftentimes we look into the Bible and we look for heroes when we ought to be looking for friends. If you want drama, it's in the Bible. If you want to know how to run your business, it's in the Bible. If you want to know how to deal with your family members, it's in the Bible. If you want to know how to run a church, it's in the Bible. Everything we have is desired is in the Bible. We just ought to read it a little more. We'll answer a lot more questions if we read our Bible. We'll cut down on a lot more confusion if we read our Bible. We won't have to call people for answers to questions because we can read our Bible. Sharper than any two-edged sword. That means it's effective. It's efficient. It does what it's set out to do. We just have to stay in it. That's the word. I like it when people say something and they say that, you know, you don't really have a problem with me. You have a problem with the word because all I'm doing is repeating the word. The word. First time, first thing I listen for when anybody is talking uh, that is particularly preaching is, you know, well, what's the text and how are they using the text? And uh, I'm reminded of my grandmother at this time because she pre when people are preaching, she has her Bible open and her finger running down the scriptures that they're preaching. And whenever they decide to turn up and get away from the scripture, she likes to leave her finger right where they last left off and wait for them to come back. <laughs> Stay in the word. Big old $5 word they call eisegesis. You know, when you're supposed to teach, you are exegeting, which is a big old $5 word. Greek means to draw out. 
figure out what it says, see what it said in the Greek, what was going on during that time, who were the people that were talking. But when you put your own inflection into the text, they call that eisegesis. And you never want to see eisegesis on a paper in seminary because that means you put something into the text that wasn't supposed to be there. That is not what the intention of the text was. That is not what they meant. But the only way you could understand that is if you study the word. Study what the word says and not what Johnny says. It is the word and it exposes everything about us. You might think that you can hide from everybody, but there is somebody you cannot hide from. I'm still in the word right around verse 13. It says there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know, they say that uh, the adage says that you might be able to fool some of the people all of the time and you might be able to fool all of the people some of the time, but you can never fool all of the people all of the time. But I could add to that that you could never fool God. Again, going back to the word, he knew us in our womb before we were formed. He knew us before we were a twinkle in our parents' eyes. So we can't hide from him. And we might be able to get away from it from everybody else, but eventually we're going to have to give an account. It's right here. I didn't say it. It's in the book. No creature hidden from his sight and but all things naked and open the eyes of whom we must give an account. So we can get away with acting a certain way towards certain people, but eventually we're going to have to give an account. Eventually. We're going to have to answer for what we did. Eventually, we are going to have to face some judgment. And the best way to avoid the bad end of said judgment is to read the word and do what's in the word. We can't hide from it, so we might as well abide by it. Obedience is better than sacrifice. In the word again. In the word. The word is valuable. The word is what we're based on. The word is even what those who are not among us use to recruit us away. Teaching about things that the pastor may not teach on because the pastor wants to preach the the, the shout scriptures and wants to get the offering up and can't really teach on the doctrine. And then somebody gets the doctrine and they leave. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm around a bunch of scholars and they're all worried about the fact that the church is becoming increasingly smaller. Uh, in Houston alone, there are 6.3 million people in the metropolitan area, but only 400,000 go to church. So that's 5.9 million people that don't affiliate themselves with the church, or at least not a Christian church. But the funny thing about all that, that, uh, that research that, that I have sort of picked up on is even though certain churches are growing smaller and they're in seminary trying to teach us all these different ways to come up with these newfangled churches and don't call it a church and don't call yourself a pastor, call yourself an engagement list leader or a missional leader or something like that. And don't even put if it's a Methodist church, don't put Methodist in the name. And those churches are still dying. But amongst all of that, the churches that are growing are the more traditional churches. 
the more staunch churches, the more orthodox churches, people are going to those because they don't want the pomp and circumstance. They want the word. So even the young people are going to orthodox churches and more traditional liturgical churches because they know that they'll get the word without the pomp and circumstance. So that would tell me, I mean, I'm just somebody from Indiana up here talking on Sundays, but that would tell me if the more traditional churches are going faster than some of these new contemporary churches, we might want to look at what the traditional churches are doing and go back to that. I mean, I ain't nobody special, but that's what I would do. I look at what works and I try to keep doing that. The word corrects and reproves and inspires and and encourages the word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God lasts forever. There's got to be a reason why the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. There's got to be a reason why somebody could write something and put it together over 2,000 years ago and it still moved on a regular basis. There's got to be a reason about it. The Word exposes us. The Word. And the Word is used to tell us about the Word. The word of God made flesh and dwelled among us. Says in verse 14, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Christ rose from the dead, ascended into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God. The father don't have we heard that before. Do we say that almost every Sunday? Jesus is our great high priest. But how can Jesus be our high priest? Jesus was the son of God, but to the people, he was the son of Mary and Joseph. He's from the tribe of Judah. And see, back then, who your mama and your daddy was was very important. Who your mother and father was determined what kind of job you were going to go into, where you were going to live, and what kind of education you would have access to. He was from the tribe of Judah, and if you were to be a priest, and not only that, but the high priest, because there was only one high priest at a time during those times, if there was only one high priest, that priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. Your family could determine your job, your career, your future. But Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Judah didn't make priests. I tell you what Judah did make, though. Judah made kings. David came from the tribe of Judah. Solomon came from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Abijah came from the tribe of Judah. Judah had kings that ruled over the tribe of Judah and then eventually over all of Israel. And that's why they said in Genesis 14, well not in Genesis 14, but they said later on in Hebrew that Jesus was after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is first mentioned in the word Genesis 14. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek 
which is kind of funny. Let me take a little pause right here. This part wasn't in the message, but I'm going to talk about it right now. Here you have people that have a problem with Malachi 3.10 and bringing ye tithes into the storehouse. Because they say that we don't do that anymore because that was not a part of it. But here you have Melchizedek, where Abraham is tithing to Melchizedek before there ever was a bring ye tithes into the storehouse. So to me, if you worry about something in, in the system and trying to follow the rules of the system, if something happens outside of the system, that means that that something is greater than the system. So if you, you have something and you want to apply it to a certain kind of rules and say that that only applies to those kind of people at that time, if it was happening before then and happening after then, it should keep going. So Abraham tithed to Melchizedek in Genesis 14. But back to how Jesus could be called the great high priest, even though he was officially on paper from the tribe of Judah. I mean, we know he was from God, but amongst the people, the tribe of Judah, well, Melchizedek had an interesting kind of lifestyle because Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. So he was both king and a priest. So when we talk about the separation of church and state, that's not how it was originally intended. King and priest together, government and holy affairs together. It was all supposed to be run together, not separate. And so Jesus was here to bring that back together. King and priests. So he got Judah for the kingship and he got to be the son of God for his priestliness. <laughs> King and priest. That is how Jesus could become the great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points was tempted as we were yet without sin. Yes. Empathize. Empathize. Empathy. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of one another. Empathy is different than just feeling for somebody's pain. Empathy, empathy means you, you understand the feelings and you share those feelings. Christ knew what it was like to be hungry, to be sleepy, to be tempted, to bow down to someone other than God. Christ knew what it was like to be human. He prepared better than any other method actor could. Uh, spent a lot of time studying the craft of acting. I used to put on plays. I used to be over the drama ministry at my church. I spent a lot of time around actors and actresses. I even acted in a couple of plays and videos and whatnot myself. Spent a lot of time understanding about actors, and one of the, the more controversial slash hard or uh, techniques in learning a role is what they call method acting. Method acting is when you take on the thoughts and the feelings of the person to prepare for a role. For example, if someone was preparing for a role to play a homeless person, they might actually live as a homeless person for a while to prepare for that role. They will eat what that person ate. 
they would sleep and act and talk like that person acted. Forrest Whitaker is considered a method actor. When he was in The Last King of Scotland playing Idi Amin, for six months he acted like Idi Amin to the point that his family did not want to stay in the same house. He ate mashed bananas and peas just like Idi Amin did. He learned uh, the Swahili and the African dialects fluently. He would not break character when the director said cut. Method actors walk around always. You cannot call them by their given name. You have to call them by the name of the, play, of the, of the role that they are playing. Actors will lose weight or gain weight. They'll call upon the emotions and the mannerism of the character to an extreme level. They study for the role and they apply extreme preparation for that role for months and months, sometimes years. That is why method acting is kind of seen as controversial because some people will get into the role too much and it will affect their psyche. Some people were worried about that when Heath Ledger played the Joker. Those kind of things will mess with the person's mind. That's why they worry about even outside of acting. They worry about law enforcement officers when they have gone undercover for too long. Because you take on the mannerisms, you take on everything like that, but you can't just hop into it. You have to prepare. Jesus prepared for the role of human being for 42 generations. He got the mannerisms down. And when he was down there, he ate like them. He slept like them. He acted like them. And told people not to tell people and don't call him by that when they started calling him the son of God and Messiah. You couldn't call him by a given name. You had to call him by the role that he was preparing. He was not ready to get out of the role just yet. He was the greatest method actor. And they said... That when a, when a method actor is playing the role great, they say that they played that role perfectly. Well, Jesus played the perfect human. He understood our role. He understood our pain. And now because he did that, he could help us in any area. Uh, the high priest's job was to have a sin offering. Not only for the, the, the sins of the whole congregation, but for himself. His role is kind of spelled out in Leviticus 4. And when the high priest died, all those confined to the city as a refuge for accidentally causing the death of another person were granted freedom. Uh, the, the high priest, his most important duty was on the Day of Atonement. The tenth day of the seventh month of every year, only the high priest was allowed to enter the most holy place. See, the, temp the temple was broken up into three areas. You had the outer court, and then you had the middle court or the middle chamber, and then you had the most holies of holies. But nobody went into the holies of holies because that is supposed to be where God was at. And they had a veil separating the holies of holies from the middle chamber so that nobody else could accidentally walk into that area. To the point that the, even though the temple does not still stand right now, if you were to go to where they believe the temple is buried, they have a sign that says, don't cross this point, because we think this is about where that area was at, and we don't want anything to happen to you if you pass that point, even at the ruins. It was only the, the most holy place that he would go in there and offer a blood sacrifice 
for the people to make atonement for their sins for the year that just ended and the high priest would walk into the throne and they would have a rope around the high priest because if the high priest went in and died there was nobody else about to go in there to get him out so they got the rope to pull him out he was here to make this sacrifice for us but Jesus became that sacrifice Jesus offered up his blood Instead of the blood of an unspotted lamb without blemish, he offered up his own blood. And that's why when he died, the veil was torn. Because we didn't have that kind of separation anymore. Anybody could go before the throne of grace. That is why the text says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. So we may find mercy and find grace in our help in our time of need. That is what Jesus was here to do. He did that all so that we can go boldly before the throne of grace and we can get what we need. We know how some of us have been raised and there's nothing wrong with this, but we know how sometimes we go before the Lord not so boldly. Uh, Lord, we come for you as humbly as we know how. Uh, thanking you for another day's journey. Rocking us up into the cradle of your arms into this present moment. Thanking you that our bed was not our cooling bed. And that our cover was not our winding sheets. And that the walls of the room were not the walls of the grave. But you saw fit to touch us to see the dawning of a new day. We understand that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we can go before him boldly. The Bible says, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall be found. Knock and the door shall be opened for you. We can go boldly. We can call upon him in a time of trouble and he'll deliver us and he'll glorify us. We in the word. That's what we know because Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for us. And it's documented in the word. That whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For God so loved his own his son that he gave his only God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that for whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He's here for us. He did what he had to do, and he left us a road map, a plan of how to handle this to get back to him. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open, and we invite you to come.